Welcome to the speaker series for the Hoover Institution's project on China's global sharp power. I am Glenn Tiffert, a Hoover Research Fellow and co-leader of the project along with Larry Diamond. Today, our guest is Sarah Cook, a close observer of China whose work I've long admired and used in the classroom. Sarah is Research Director for China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan at Freedom House, where she directs the China Media Bulletin, a monthly digest in English and Chinese providing news and analysis on media and freedom developments related to China. She's the author of several special reports about China and the freedom of conscience, including Beijing's global media footprint with the National Endowment for Democracy this year, Beijing's global megaphone last year, and the Battle for China's Spirit in 2017, a report about China's policies on religious freedom. She has served as an NGO delegate to the UN Human Rights Commission as well. Sarah, we're delighted that you could join us today. Uh, towards the end of the program, Sarah will take audience questions. Please submit them using the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. And with that, Sarah, the floor is yours. Great. Thank you very much, Glenn. Um, and thank you for, for the invitation and, and the opportunity to speak about this topic. Um, so what I was going to do in the time in my initial presentation is to first talk very briefly about um, really the evolution of, of the regime in China, uh, within China, because I think that really helps explain what we're seeing happening internationally. And then specifically talking about some of what our research has found in terms of the way in which um, the Chinese Communist Party and various related entities are influencing uh, media and information flows outside of China. And in the latter part, I'm actually going to talk about the pushback and some of the responses that we've seen, particularly from non-governmental actors, because I think there's some really interesting and hopeful um, dynamics there. Um, and lastly, I'll end with a few thoughts about where we go, where we go next. Um, so to start, I think as we, you know, we look from the outside, I think there's a real sense that you know, the, the Chinese regime and the Communist Party under Xi Jinping are becoming more aggressive internationally. But what people who might not follow what's happening inside China so closely, um, they may not realize how much authoritarianism within China has expanded over the last decade in particular. Um, and we at Freedom House were best known for kind of giving scores to countries on their level of freedom and have long assessed uh, China. Um, and of course, China has long been ranked in the category of quote, not free countries. Um, but again, kind of, I myself recently went back and looked at some of the scores for China over the past years, um, and was actually really surprised how much you know we you really see in, in the scoring that it's changed. So just to give an example, um, you know, back in 2012, uh, Freedom House on our Freedom in the World survey that looks at political rights and civil liberties, China was rated not free and received a score of 17 out of 100. So as you can see, that's pretty. Um, you know, repressive already. Um, but actually, if you look at the most recent edition that covered 2020, um, China scored a nine. So we're looking at a country and a regime where um, that was already highly authoritarian, highly repressive, and over the last decade has become essentially even half as free as that low level of, of starting point freedom was. Um, I think our an assessments of internet freedom have similarly found um, a similar decline from around a 17 in 2011 uh, to a 10 in 2020. And so I think even that, those numerical dimensions, they reflect, but they don't fully capture the qualitative change 
this change that so many people inside China and so many scholars and others who have been traveling in China and working know people in China have felt, which is this closing of space. How many things that used to be on the safe side of the red lines are no longer that? And the punishments are extremely harsh. Um, you know, we're talking about uh, people, you know, being detained, uh, being thrown uh, in not only in extra legal camps, but in very, very long prison terms. Again, for things that previously were tolerated and people who had built careers, and you know, we're not just talking about necessarily Uyghur Muslims, but human rights lawyers, other members of religious communities in China. Um, and so I think that's really important to keep in mind as we see how uh, China and the Chinese Communist Party's behavior uh, is changing internationally. And I think one of the things that we see, you know, uh, structurally in China as well, um, and this has been amplified since really since 2018, is, is the role of the Communist Party itself in China and in its system, including in the media system. And the extent to which the Communist Party's propaganda department and the state media are really under the grasp of the Chinese Communist Party. And so I think we're seeing that reflected in the regime's activities abroad. Um, you know, some of this precedes Xi Jinping, certainly, um, but I think we've seen under Xi's leadership a much more aggressive international stance and a real prioritization being given to enhancing the global reach and influence of Chinese state media, of the United Front Work Department, and of various other ways in which um, China and, and the, the Communist Party are able to exert influence um, abroad. And I think it's that broader context that what uh, the main topic of my uh, of our conversation today, which is the media space, um, really fits in. So, you know, and looking at what's been happening, kind of the evolution of the impact of Beijing's influence on the media space, um, I think the reality that we're at right now is that you really do have hundreds of millions of people around the world um, and in multiple languages who are consuming news and information influenced by the Chinese Communist Party, influenced by their narratives, by their direction, sometimes specific content, but sometimes just being able to set the terms of what's off limits um, without often being aware of um, the party state origins or influence. Um, but I think one of the other things when we look at this phenomenon is that really is truly global. I mean, really no market is too small. And in some ways that's really to the credit of the Chinese government and Chinese officials in really taking into consideration global audiences and wanting to influence them. And so if you look at whether it's the NED report or the, the global um, Beijing's global megaphone uh, that I had written and Freedom House had published um, in um, last year, uh, I mean, we have examples from places like Papua New Guinea. You see linguistic diversity of specific campaigns related to Serbia, Italy, languages that are spoken by relatively few people if you look at the global, the global spectrum. And so I think that's one of the things to really keep in mind, that this is very much a, a, a global phenomenon. I think the other thing to keep in mind is that I think often when we think about Beijing's global media influence, right away people think about Chinese state media's expansion. And that's absolutely a part of the toolbox and a part of what is happening. But I would argue that it's actually, not only is it not only the only dimension, but I would say it's arguably not the most disconcerting or the most important element even. I think when I think about the aspects of China's media influence um, that are worrisome and where we really wanna put a focus on, um, 
you know, is where you see these three C's that the Australians um, had coined of elements that are covert, uh, coercive, uh, and, and corrupting. And so, um, you know, in, in kind of our analysis and trying to set a framework around this, really we divided the form, the influence dimension um, in, into four types. Uh, one is propaganda and promotion of Chinese government content and pro-Beijing media outlets um, and narratives. Now, some of that happens by Chinese state media, and it's very obvious that it's Chinese state media. But even when it's Chinese state media, a lot of times, there is an element of, of covert and lack of transparency in the taglines they use to self-describe themselves on Chinese social media, in the placement of, of paid advertisements without a clear um, designation, whether it's of the title that this is coming from the People's Daily or China Daily, or again, the description. It'll say People's Daily, which is the Communist Party's mouthpiece, it will say the largest newspaper in China. Um, China Daily, which is a state-owned English language media outlet, will simply say the largest English language news outlet in China. Well, of course, it's one of the few that's really English language news outlets that's really allowed to be disseminated widely in China. Um, so I think even when you're looking at the way in which Chinese state media content uh, is directly being insinuated into foreign news feeds and the like, there's usually a layer of a lack of transparency there. But then you get into even, there's a whole spectrum where you're getting into the purchasing of stakes and how that influences ways of influencing journalists, influencing and co-opting media owners, co-productions, various different um, levels of insinuating content and pushing particular narratives that are deemed as favorable or desired by Beijing, but where the footprint is, is much less clear. I think an, another way in which this is actually a relatively new dimension of the media influence um, on the China side, though we've seen Russia doing it for a long time, are disinformation campaigns. So this is where you're looking at deliberate campaigns and dissemination of misleading content, often via various forms of inauthentic activity and manipulation on global social media platforms that in the China case are actually blocked in China. Um, and that's something I'll talk a little bit more about in a minute, but that's a much newer phenomenon. That's something that before 2017 wasn't really happening. And I think over the last year or two has really accelerated quite a bit. Uh, the third category is censorship. So these are various ways in which usually some form of economic clout or pressure on owners, or in some cases, other physical restrictions, intimidation and harassment are used to um, disincentivize critical reporting or reporting that on topics uh, that would be disfavored by Beijing. And those are not only, you know, the, the, the three T's, Tiananmen, Tibet, um, and, and Taiwan, but an expanding number of topics. It includes the persecution of people who practice the Falun Gong meditation. It increasingly includes pro-Tibetans. Pro it includes the suppression of Uyghur Muslims. Um, it includes, a, a, you know, what's happening in terms of in the, in the situation in Hong Kong. It includes a, a much wider variety and ever-expanding list of um, this unapproved topics um, that are deemed, quote, sensitive to Beijing, um, and that often do reflect some of that intensifying repression and censorship that we see domestically in China. And then the third, and this is also, again, a relatively new phenomenon that we really weren't seeing up until four or five years ago, um, and that's this element of really um, gaining influence over key nodes in the information flow in foreign countries, so this usually would entail um, a Chinese technology firm, for example, with close um, government ties 
building or acquiring content dissemination platforms in other countries. And so two examples of this, for example, would be uh, digital television um, in places like Africa, but also parts of Asia um, and social media applications. Uh, not just TikTok, but I think in a lot of cases, uh, apps like WeChat or news aggregator apps that we're seeing in parts of Asia um, that are owned by Chinese companies like ByteDance um, or Tencent uh, can really have a profound impact on the way in which um, certain segments of society uh, in on foreign countries obtain news and what news they actually have access to. So I would say those are kind of the four parts of the toolbox. And so as you can see, the state media expansion, like whether people are turning their TVs to CGTN um, is actually really a, a small proportion of that. So I think in terms of, I'll talk a little bit about some of the trends that, that we're seeing, um, especially since 2017. Um, and that was, I think that coincides with Xi Jinping at the 19th party Congress, um, affirming that and, and saying that, you know, uh, implying that China should serve more as a model for developing countries, having a much more internationally looking uh, perspective. Um, so uh, one is the emergence of more Russia style social media disinformation campaigns, um, but also things like manipulation of some search results sometimes. Um, and just overall, and this is really what's happened in the last year, year and a half, uh, is more of sophisticated and impactful tactics more examples of content that it's not just about topics that relate to China, some of the sensitive topics I was talking about before. It's not just about um, trying to make Uyghurs or people who are supporting the Uyghur cause look bad or Chinese overseas dissidents look bad um, or, or Hong Kong protesters uh, look, look bad or, or adjusting the information there. But increasingly, things related to foreign societies, you know, and campaigns that are, you know, in some cases related to China and say aid to Italy surrounding the COVID uh, pandemic, um, but also just sowing divisions, amplifying hashtags related to racial tensions in the United States, um, certainly getting involved in elections um, in Taiwan. Um, but I think the other thing is just the linguistic diversity um, and the wider array of, you know, now a new and like more authentic looking profiles that are tweeting and posting in Spanish, for example. And then actually getting retweeted by pretty high level social media influencers across Latin America. So you definitely see this adaptation and sophistication on the disinformation side. I think more generally what we're seeing is that a variety of tactics across these different elements and in all of them pretty much, especially in terms of propaganda, censorship and disinformation, um, you really see tactics that were initially used to co-opt Chinese diaspora media and suppress critical coverage in overseas Chinese language publications being applied with some effect to local mainstream media in various countries. And that's where you see dynamics related to purchasing stakes, buying paid media supplements, co-opting owners, but also sending intimidating emails and other forms of intimidation to local journalists um, in places like Sweden or Russia, or uh, I think there was a cartoonist in Ghana maybe, um, you know, uh, to try to intimidate people in terms of the kind of content they're publishing that's perceived as critical of China. Um, and even just critical of China's economy, for example, it's not necessarily always related to the political system. Um, I think the other element is, you know, this, this question of when you have Chinese companies that are gaining control or, you know, and get to be the gatekeepers over the content dissemination system. So I'm not talking here about this question of 
Is there a backdoor that enables surveillance? I'm talking strictly about the content dissemination side. How the big question is, well, maybe they'll just, you know, that doesn't matter. But the, the issue that we're seeing is that you do see it start, that gatekeeping being used to manipulate the content. So you see very clearly on WeChat, people, activists being censored, politicians who use WeChat to communicate to their local constituents, their Chinese constituents, being censored, having particular posts about the Hong Kong protests, about, in one case in Australia recently, um, about a form of disinf disinformation, very um, distorting uh, post by Chinese state media on a global social media platform, a correction or a response issued on WeChat and WeChat censoring it. Um, and, um, and then I think, um, you know, a, a number of other examples, a news aggregator app in Indonesia that was found that moderation policies were downplaying certain um, types of content. Um, and, you know, in the WeChat case, like there are, you know, Chinese diaspora media that are more independent, just can't get accounts. Or even the ones who have accounts have to be very, very careful about what they post because they don't want to be shut down. So very much a situation where that type of gatekeeping is actually influencing the conversations that people can have. Um, and not only among the Chinese diaspora, but in other cases and other languages too. Although there is definitely a lack of research and investigation in this space that is, is one of the places that would be great to, to learn more about. So, so kind of taking all of this, so what's the actual impact? So how good is China at actually shaping global public opinion? So this is really interesting because I think it's, it's changed. I think when we think about impact, uh, there's a couple of different dimensions. One is the question of public opinion. I think the other is more of this kind of democracy lens and, and institutional and press freedom lens of whether they succeed at changing hearts and minds, there's actual real impact on, um, the, on the space and on what people can do in foreign countries that are being constrained by the Chinese Communist Party. But first, on public opinion. So one, the answer is really mixed. Um, I mean, and it actually changes over time. So when you look at China's image, say, around the world, um, and of course, this is influenced by a variety of factors, not only Chinese state media, but it's one of the few sources of data that we have. So when you look kind of at like, you know, the earlier part of, of the last decade, public opinions in academic studies really show that in these initial years of the state media's expansion, views on China and Xi Jinping personally uh, improved, uh, particularly in parts of the global South, various African countries, places like Lebanon, India, Brazil, Argentina. But what's really interesting is when you look is that since 2015, the even where the, there's a more than half of the population that views China or Xi Jinping favorably, the percentage has dropped. And you really see the percentage of people expressing a favorable view, and this is mostly in Pew surveys, decline, sometimes pretty precipitously, in some very influential countries in the global south, places like Indonesia, the Philippines, India, Brazil, Kenya. Um, and it's obviously hard to isolate the precise cause, but it has coincided with this greater international aggressiveness in the South China Sea. So that certainly influences views in places like the Philippines, mass, the program of mass detentions in Xinjiang, which has affected say, views say, in places like Indonesia. Um, and of course, you know, the dr dramatic decline of, of and repression and change in the status and handling of Hong Kong. Um, and then, of course, COVID came along and that also, um, and the particularly the initial cover up in Wuhan by CCP officials um, has, has hurt um, views of China and Xi Jinping even more. 
Um, but what's interesting, I think, when we look at the question of kind of how much can they frame the narrative um, is sometimes very specific questions. So for example, there was this really interesting survey conducted um, about this question of the origins of the coronavirus pandemic. And you see a survey of 26,000 people in 25 countries, this was late last year, that found that the overwhelming majority of respondents said that it was initially detected and originated in China. Um, and this isn't just, you know, the you know, European countries or the United States. This is countries like Nigeria, South Africa, Saudi Arabia, um, where you might expect that China's influence on the media space there might be you know, greater um, and there'd be less skepticism. Um, but this is, again, this is despite persistent efforts and campaigns, including using inauthentic accounts, um, you know, and these wolf warrior uh, diplomats um, on Twitter to really try to deflect blame and to relocate the virus's origins to the United States, to Italy, or to elsewhere. So that's like a really specific campaign that has run into very real hurdles in terms of kind of the acceptance. Um, there's other examples that, but I'll, um, I can talk more about that if people are interested. But I, I think the other aspect in terms of not just public or journalistic opinion, it doesn't really tell the whole story um, when we're thinking about impact of equal, or I would say even greater significance are the more subtle ways in which Beijing has su successfully insinuated content and economic leverage to influence foreign media markets or constrained space. So you see content sharing agreements signed by Xinhua News, the news state-run news agency or other partnerships a few years ago, now really starting to bear fruit. We're a large proportion in some countries um, or in particular media spaces um, of information about China is actually being dominated more by Xinhua News, um, where the coverage of the political downsides of foreign investment or lending are being stifled in certain countries or media outlets are less likely to cover it, where specific disfavored outlets, uh, you know, are, are suffer from or journalists threats or financial repercussions um, if they report or because they had reported critically related to China. Um, and the very real impact on the Chinese diaspora and the kind of news and information that Chinese people speaking um, communities outside of China, they, it's not only information about China, it's information about their own countries um, that is being that, that, that really can be can be quite severely limited. But I always like to end on a positive note. So I think the other really interesting thing um, is the shifting tide. And I think the recognition by both government, the democratic governments, um, and others in the media and information sector about uh, the very real problems opposed by this type of activity um, and, and an effort to, to respond. And so I think you see some legislation efforts, um, some regulatory action. I think sometimes what we're seeing now, and this is the balance, and I think the conversation that really needs to be had in more, with more nuance, is sometimes there are very blunt policy instruments being deployed um, to deal with very real threats. And so WeChat is a problem. Blocking WeChat in China entirely is not probably the most proportionate and, and, and appropriate response. So I think trying to figure out how to respond in a way that still protects freedom of expression and access to information is one of the real challenges we're facing now. But I think besides the governmental response, and this was really a focus of the paper that I wrote for the NED recently, uh, is, in, is in the non-governmental sectors. Actually, there's a lot of things that are happening or that could be done 
by people in the media and the civil society and the technology sector um, to respond. Um, and, and it's really interesting. So for just to give a few examples, we've seen a number of prominent uh, US or UK based news outlets that have discon discontinued paid advertorials um, from Chinese state media in the last couple of years. Um, in Argentina, there, were at, there was one incident where there was a Chinese agent trying to uh, spread a clearly a defamatory disinformation relate with some COVID intersection, but basically defaming um, uh, and claiming that people who practice Falun Gong, including local people in Argentina, could pose some kind of a health risk. And at least three Argentinian news outlets rejected it. So you do see this kind of awareness and, and pushback by local journalists and editors. In Thailand and Sri Lanka, local journalists publishing in-depth reports about China's media influence. So a lot of what I know is actually the result of people on the ground in different countries being able to follow and expose um, and research some really interesting data analysis by like an Italian journalist and a data uh, company that, that does um, social media data analysis that showed some of the disinformation and hashtag manipulation campaigns um, uh, surrounding um, uh, COVID in Italy. Um, so I think it's just really interesting that you see both individual reporters and in some cases, news outlets being really innovative and aware and, and pushing back. Um, I think you, the whole slew of research institutes, technology firms, cybersecurity firms, um, unveiling the details of these types of disinformation manipulation attacks. Um, in the technology sector, you do see companies like Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube dedicating resources and taking measures to respond to and identify an authentic activity linked to China, um, but also labeling Chinese state media accounts. And one of the interesting things, the China Media Project actually did an analysis and found that after Twitter started labeling Chinese state media accounts as being state affiliated, um, there was about a 30% drop in engagement. Um, and so I think those kinds of actions that enhance transparency for the users um, and make it harder um, because there is a natural skepticism um, among both journalists and a lot of users around the world to Chinese state government sponsored content, which is, of course, why the Chinese state media and other related actors try to obfuscate that connection. So making that connection clearer to readers um, can have a real impact um, in terms of, um, of its circulation, in terms of um, the impact on news consumers, or at least just, you know, news consumer awareness. Um, and then you've got some really interesting civil society, you know, just more engagement. Um, advocacy campaign, Safeguard Defenders has done a really interesting and, and quite effective so far, I think, campaign of surrounding initially the forced televised confessions and the fact, again, that these are not just being aired in China to Chinese users, but internationally via some of these news outlets uh, and Chinese state media. Um, but other elements of, you know, and, and in some cases it's been regulatory action coming say from places like the UK where you're, where there's a violation of the actual regulations. But in other cases, it's just, the, you know, becoming aware of this and um, local carriers deciding that uh, they would prefer not to have a station that's airing this kind of content be part of the package that they're offering. Um, um, so, so I think there's a lot happening and some things that are happening are also very cross-sectoral. Um, Taiwan's government together with technology firms, civil society initiatives, companies like Line, uh, really had a very coordinated kind of multi-stakeholder effort to deflect a disinformation campaign surrounding the January 2020 elections there. 
uh, that is really, I think, has a lot of lessons to be learned, um, you know, for others, countries and even act other non-governmental actors that are thinking about this space. Um, but of course, you know, sometimes these are effective, but there's definitely more to be done. And I think when we're looking at this space, look, every democracy or, or semi-democratic system, um, in addition to the more countries at the more not free end of the spectrum, have a host of domestic concerns, challenges, and regulatory debates surrounding press and internet freedom. But compared to just 10 or 20 years ago, um, the reality is that China and the Chinese Communist Party and all of that authoritarian baggage that comes with that is a very real player in pretty much every media system on the planet. And so it's really imperative that anyone who's engaged in the space, be they journalists, regulators, technology firms, press freedom groups, and even ordinary news consumers, um, acknowledge that influence, understand it, and be aware of the tactics, be alert to the pitfalls that are inherent in some of the media engagements. Because one of the things that we've seen and that our research has found is that when you look, there are just hundreds of hundreds, if not more, of incidents that have occurred around the world over the past decade, um, repeatedly demonstrate that once the Chinese Communist Party or a company or a media outlet or someone with close ties to the party gains a foothold, especially an economic foothold, within an information dissemination stand, channel, manipulation, uh, manipulation efforts are inevitably going to follow. It might not happen today. It might not happen tomorrow. But at some point, that's likely to be when it's insignificant enough and deemed enough in the interest of the party, the way in which the party is able to exercise control over these actors because of the domestic system in China does can be activated as soon as that test case or that red line shifts. And so it doesn't mean that there shouldn't be any kind of engagement, but it needs to be open-eyed and it needs to be open-eyed at the beginning and needs to be more consciously involving some of the safeguards that could potentially be put in place um, to protect for when that activation happens, because at some point it will happen. And I think as people think about it, what we see happening in, as part of the adaptation is that you know, you have to think about what maybe your red line is, because maybe for some people, you know, it might not be Tiananmen Square. Okay, so there, you know, maybe maybe that's not the issue that really moves me um, as, as unjust as censoring or restricting content on that is. It might not be Tibet. Maybe it's the Uyghurs because somebody's Muslim or it's a Muslim majority country. Uh, maybe it's other believers like Christians or it's a, a campaign against Falun Gong. Maybe it's related to when it starts to affect the domestic politics of your own country, um, where you're starting to have political candidates that are being, where information about them is being amplified. Maybe it's about racial tension. Um, and, you know, a lot of the disinformation, it might not favor one candidate or one side or another. It's just to kind of, it's very Russian-esque that way. It's kind of to sow more chaos and division and undermine social cohesion. So thinking about kind of like, what's that red line? And what are the, eventually that red line will be crossed. Um, very likely. We don't know when. So how do you put in place the kinds of safeguards so that when that happens, you're able to, you know, uh, protect the freedom and democracy and the human rights and freedom of expression and journalistic integrity, um, you know, in, in your country or in your media outlet um, that, um, that, that you really deeply, deeply care about. Um, and so I think that's really the thought process that a lot of people are going through right now 
Um, and there's a lot of answers that we're all still trying to figure out. Thank you, Sarah. Um, that was a really great overview of the uh, of China's uh, changing policies in, in global media. I wonder if in our in our conversation we could begin a little closer to home before branching out globally, and that is uh, many of the vulnerabilities and pathways that China exploits in global media markets and domestic media markets are it seems different versions of of local vulnerabilities. You know the the economic model of media has changed so fundamentally in the last 20 years. And we know that domestically here in the United States, we have tremendous problems with truth, legitimacy, credibility of, of, of traditional media sources and new alternative media sources that have inflamed local divisions and, and created some very fraught circumstances and events in our recent history. Um, what is China? What is the unique China dimension here in the United States to that problem? What does China add add to the problem? Or is China free riding on pre-existing vulnerabilities and using them to its own advantages? And then secondly, how is what China is doing different than, say, what Russia is doing? You know, many people have observed, for example, that China's messaging tends to focus on the positive, constructive, telling China's you know, story in, in, in the best terms that it possibly can, whereas Russia seeks to sow division, uh, to divide. They're not really putting forward a positive narrative of, of Putin's vision of the world. Uh, would you endorse that understanding? Do you see it differently? So I'll, I'll leave those two questions uh, and we'll go from there. Okay. I think the second question is probably a faster answer and I'll, I'll, I'll go with that first. Um, I think uh, there's more convergence um, than there used to be because I think it used to be much more clearly that Russia and it's still the case is, as far as I understand it, you know, is, is very much, it doesn't really care about Russia's own, Putin doesn't care so much about Russia's own reputation. It's more about taking down democracy or taking down other countries and countering, uh, you know, the, the West or the United States. Um, I think the shift that we've seen with regards to China, and it is a little bit of a problem, to be honest, for the image of the, the Chinese Communist Party and and the state-run media even as they're trying to, um, on the one hand, tell China's story well, but increasingly the way in which they're doing it uh, actually hurts China's reputation. So they're kind of undermining their own efforts. So you see, if you look at a lot of the content, uh, it is still a lot of it is seemingly benign is, is kind of trying to prop up a positive image of China and the Chinese government and innovation and bullet trains and and, and fuzzy pandas and things like that. But I think I first noticed this in 2019 at the height of the Hong Kong um, uh, protests. And it's kind of jarring, you know, but you kind of go, going through like CGTNs, the, the international arm of the Chinese state broadcaster CCTV on Facebook. And you see again, these kind of this fluff, I would say that, you know, it's, I would say is there, that's public diplomacy. If that's one that they want to put out there, I think that's, less of a problem. And then suddenly you see these videos that are like likening a Hong Kong protesters to child, to like ISIS because there are children protesting and ISIS has child soldiers and everybody's holding grenades. And then this, they're saying like proven falsehoods that like someone's holding a grenade launcher, but it's really actually like a water gun or something like that, that, you know, that um, 
that is really jarring. Um, but this basically, I think, was the beginning of this shift. And then I think you see that even more so with the Wolf Warrior diplomacy, and especially during COVID, where there's been such an effort to like spread deliberate conspiracy theories about COVID originating from a U.S. Army base and was brought to China by the U.S. military and things like that, that I think um, is uh, a, a very clear shift in tone. And I think that combined with, um, again, this emergence of tactics that are much more clearly covert um, or are coercive, uh, that again, undermines and just the way that the CCP and, and related actors are going about trying to influence global media actually undermines their own messages. Um, and I think that combined with, uh, again, their own actions at home, um, including, you know, tearing up international agreements and crushing free, you know, democracy and, and political freedom in Hong Kong, as well as campaigns like what's happening, uh, what's being done to Uyghur Muslims in China, um, again, undermines that story in and of itself. And so I think that actually poses a real challenge. I think at some point right now, they're trying to play both sides. And I think you do see a difference, I would say still, I would probably between some of the content and narratives and tactics that in the, in the kind of the global North versus the global South, and even in terms of the audiences. I mean, when, you, when I was looking at some of the, a few years, a couple of years ago, some of the ads on Facebook promoting Chinese state media, um, and it was very deliberately geared towards the global south. So like CGTM Francaise was doing these ads and they were targeting French speakers in Algeria, Morocco, and Tunisia. They were not trying to promote the page to people uh, in, in Brussels or, or in France or in Paris. So I think there's also a little bit more sophistication in terms of the division of audiences sometimes. Um, the first question related to the US. Oh, so right. So I think first of all, um, and, I, and I think I was maybe able to articulate this a little better in, in the Ned paper, but I, I think part of the way of thinking about this idea of how do you kind of uh, deal with uh, the challenges um, that this activity from China and the CCP pose for media freedom domestically is one, yes, just looking at the existing vulnerabilities and just the general work that goes into strengthening and closing those loopholes uh, and strengthening our own media eco ecosystem. Um, I, I think at the same time, also actions that might be taken with regards to China can serve as that, even if that's maybe the push, can serve to actually strengthen the system, either from foreign influence or other elements of like cross ownership. I mean, if, the, if because of ownership concerns surrounding China, there are new rules that are passed related to media ownership generally, and that expands the level of transparency, for example, uh, surrounding say oligarchic control or corporate control over media, then that's a good thing. That's even though, even if the catalyst was perhaps, um, you know, the, the more national security concerns surrounding a, a Chinese influence. Um, so I think that's, that's one thing. Um, I think um, in the US, it's a little tricky because I think there's a few things. I mean, I think one is, look, there's a lot of thing, ways in which even despite all the work by journalists and media, the Chinese government does restrict the information we have about China. They kicked out pretty much most American foreign correspondents. I mean, that's one of the real changes in the last few years anyway. Um, the Chinese language media is where they really have the strongest foothold. I mean, going all the way into like advertising agencies that will not advertise in certain 
you know, there'll be on this question of who can get a WeChat account or not. So I think that element, even if it's a relatively small proportion of the population is where there's a very strong uh, foothold. Um, I think it's, you're starting to see things, as far as I understand this element of like purchasing stakes or influencing local media, uh, radio stations in like Las Vegas and things like that. So I think those are some of the places to kind of watch. Um, um, but I think there is definitely when we look at uh, more of the kind of disinformation um, elements, you do see that it's more about amplifying existing divisions, existing hashtags, um, uh, groups and views on kind of the extremes and trying to bring them into more of the mainstream or amplify them. And so actually one report really interestingly recently that Graphica did was looking at some campaigns. And like one example was a video that seemed to, that was later debunked that seemed to um, indicate that someone was burning ballots. This was in the aftermath of the, of the election and was tweeted by a social media, tweeted pretty widely. And it actually, they were actually able to trace that the person who got retweeted, like it actually originated from two Chinese linked accounts and they had kind of planted this. Now that wasn't the only video obviously, but I think you do see an effort there where there's a situation of trying to amplify of the existing kind of chaos. And I think right, and this was the U.S. election, right, um, and around the U.S. And, elections, yeah, right, and called into question the legitimacy of the results and the authenticity yeah. of the ballot yeah. and all of that. So I think, That's right. yeah, so I, I think there's definitely they're building on what exists, um, but sometimes injecting things that are of their own priority. You know, so much has changed too with respect to wolf warrior diplomacy and the messaging of China in the last couple of years, uh, especially because of COVID. But much more recently, uh, over the PRC policies and the criticisms directed regarding PRC policy in Hong Kong and Xinjiang, I wonder if you have any observations as these are developing in real time about whether you know, PRC media policy and messaging is evolving as they step up and are, are really in the hot seat now over the changing environment in Hong Kong and Xinjiang. Uh, is this an, uh, an elaboration of the trends you've observed or are they shifting into a new and sort of higher gear? Both, I think. I think, I think if there's, well, one is the question of messaging, the other is the tactics. So I think what you're yeah. seeing is an elaboration of the tactics, especially um, and, the, and a, an expansion of the target. So that's often what we'll see domestically is that you'll see tactics that are used against one particular group or perceived CCP enemy. And it seems like maybe it's a small or it's an aberration and it starts to expand. So even if you look at what's happening in Xinjiang now, a lot of these quote transformation tactics and uh, re-education through transformation, that really comes from the campaign to eliminate Falun Gong. And some of the specific officials are the same people. So you definitely have this kind of learning curve. And so I think that's some of what we're seeing now. So we're seeing some of the kinds of attacks on people like Adrian Zenz, on a Chinese um, Australian researcher, um, really vicious attacks, personalized attacks against them. Um, that are things that um, have happened to people like Yang Junli or have, have been happening to Tong Biao, have been happening to Chinese activists overseas, but now, you know, but now that you're seeing happening to someone who's not just in exile, but someone who's you know, a native Chinese Australian or a German researcher. So I think this element of particular targets and tactics that were tested out in one way or another 
um, being expanded to a wider range of, tar of, of topics or targets is part of what we're seeing. Um, and then I think the other element is, is this question of the adaptation where you're seeing, especially again, this element of kind of having more success and getting social media influencers in different languages, um, creating more personas for fake personas as opposed to just bot accounts. So that's again, adapting something really much more from the Kremlin's playbook to some effect in terms of actually getting social media influencers in different countries. Um, there's been a bunch of like, I think YouTubers, I think some a lot of them are foreigners, some of them are in China, some outside of China that have been publishing various videos and it's kind of, we don't know exactly where the reason for that is, maybe that's their, um, uh, you know, their genuine opinion, but I think there's speculation that there's some money being exchanged and things like that. So, um, and those are some things, again, we've seen before in the Chinese language space. So I would say it's, it's a combination of adapting tactics as well as expanding previous tactics that were used against one target to a wider array of targets and topics. A new and really alarming trend in the Chinese media space, of course, is the changing climate in Hong Kong. Wonder if you have any observations on exactly what is happening to Hong Kong media right now, how quickly it's moving, and then some strategies for helping to preserve media freedom and our understanding of what's happening in Hong Kong and the ability of people to express themselves freely in Hong Kong. Um, so, I mean, part of what's really amazing about the media in Hong Kong is that they're hanging in there. I mean, so much of what we actually know about what's happening is because outlets like Apple Daily, like Hong Kong Free Press, like Initium, they're actually still reporting and they have people in Hong Kong and they're still reporting about what's going on and they're reporting about all of the different cases. And so I think the space to watch, in addition to the case against Jimmy Lai, is when things start, you know, if you actually get some of these news outlets being effectively shut down completely. Um, right now, um, I think I think those, some of those independent outlets are, are, are managing to survive. Um, we'll see how long that lasts, but I think it really is, the, the courage is actually quite remarkable and the amount and quality of the information they're still able to get out. Um, I think one of the biggest changes in the media space has been the public broadcaster, RTHK. So RTHK has long been really quite editorially independent and really just a, a really important source of information for people in Hong Kong and broad, and as well as let's say broadcasting BBC World. And it's just been like really dramatic, the change. It's like something people we've been, we and others have been warning about. And I look back at like a report we wrote in 2007, we were, worried, we were warning about the editorial independence of RTHK. And it's just been gutted just in the last few months in terms of now at the leadership level, in terms of firing dismissals, in terms of canceling of programs, in terms of canceling of, say, carrying BBC World um, programming. It's just been, um, and it's really sad to see. And I think we're going to see more people departing from there. Um, in terms of what can be done, uh, it's really, it's really tricky. I mean, I think a lot of the efforts that are being done in terms of um, uh, very real efforts to welcome Hong Kongers who are fleeing, whether it's for asylum or for other, is, is really commendable. And you have a lot of countries thinking about that. You have a lot of Hong Kongers like creating civil society, new civil society groups to assist people who are leaving. Um, I think um, if some of these news outlets are shut down, you may have people leaving and I think trying to see how to keep them online as much as possible on external servers and the like. We are seeing some news sites starting to be blocked in, in Hong Kong. So I think there's, but I think 
I, I think there's a long way to go before the Great Firewall fully descends on, on Hong Kong. So there is still okay. some space. And I think thinking about, um, and I'm sure some of these outlets have contingency plans and the like, um, but about how to support them if they really do need to leave or move their um, efforts outside of Hong Kong uh, to see how to support, support them as essentially exile media then. I want to ask you, you know, one way of understanding China's global media footprint and, and the tremendous gains it's been able to make is, uh, is through the lens of market failure. You know, the economics of global media have changed so much. Western media are retrenching and withdrawing from many parts of the world and many media markets. And China is rushing in to fill that vacuum uh, with a lot of state subsidies. Uh, China, for example, is making its wire services available to local newspapers and media outlets in the developing world at low or no cost, whereas BBC or AP, AGP, uh, AG, uh, APF are, uh, are, are, are extremely expensive. And so just the, the economics of it recommend going with the, the free China service. And, and perhaps if you're an editor in Lagos or in, in Karachi, uh, much of the international content looks similar enough that you can run it. What role does government have in stepping in, the U.S. government or other Western governments to step in where markets seem to have failed and are ceding the territory to China? Uh, well, well, two thoughts. One, um, from some of the bit that I've seen, um, I wouldn't underestimate the sophistication of the local editors. And so I think that's where... And this relates to the second point I would say is, I think this awareness raising um, and under deep, making sure people understand what this content is and where it's coming from and how it may be different is, is useful. At one point I was looking at a Kenyan online newspaper and, based, and that had one of these deals with Xinhua. And basically for local news, they were using their own news for actually internationals or news about what was happening in China. They were still using say Reuters and AP. They were mostly using Xinhua News for Pan-African news. Um, and in some cases, again, there, there's some really good stories that Xinhua might pick up. Um, so I think, um, I think there's definitely some nuance there in terms of how this content can play or can, can actually be used. But, but I think for the role of the government, I mean, one, there is a huge um, media development industry as part of the overall international aid and democracy support and I think thinking more consciously about how to mainstream the CCP factor into that, into training programs, into media literacy programs, um, into financial support to maybe subsidize being able to either have an individual reporter on the foreign desk who actually covers China and Asia, has opportunities to travel, something along those lines is you know, receives a grant to go to Taiwan and China from maybe another government, some kind of fellowship opportunity, as opposed to only a junket being sponsored, say, by the Chinese government. Um, um, uh, and, and I think even in terms of press freedom advocacy, making sure that local press freedom groups have some of the capacity and the knowledge to deal with this, and not necessarily as like kind of pulling out a separate kind of China program. But because I don't know that that's so effective, and I think you do see some of that happening, but really more like if you're talking about media literacy and different types of sources that of information, making sure that people know what people's daily is and know what Xinhua is, and that can be very small. It's not just knowing that it's Chinese state media um, that's owned by the government, but even just like that little bit of like 
the degree to which the content is so tightly controlled and they get daily directives from the Chinese Communist Party, that little bit can really have a real impact on people's awareness. And I think in Taiwan, we've seen this more goes to kind of the element of detecting disinformation. But there have been some real successes, not only with young people, with older folks, because I think one of the issues in Taiwan is that it was more the elderly who were being more likely to be influenced by some of the uh, the disinformation circulating that was coming in from China. So I think just consider as a holistic form of kind of media development, um, looking at where the CCP influence element should fit in and can fit in sometimes fairly affordably um, to really help add that as one of the forms of concerns or threat, not the only one, because again, so many countries there are you know, arguably more urgent press freedom issues, but it is something and it's something that's just going to get bigger and bigger, honestly, uh, in the years to come. So I would say that for that, the whole kind of media development donor sector, that's a really important thing. And then again, in terms of like, yeah, I just, you know, fellowships and opportunities and all the things that are already being done to support investigative journalism, you know, and, and just and, and media just just in general. And I think some of this actually goes also to fight private philanthropists, because I think it's not just donors. I think if you're somebody who's concerned about, you know, this, this is what concerns you about some of the, the off, offshoots, I guess, of the weakening um, economic model here in the United States or in your own or in another country, say in Europe, you know, thinking about, you know, what could be done to, to shore up local media and foreign reporting and knowledge and information and um, to, again, both close vulnerabilities and just enhance awareness because it, it does go, go a long way. Before turning over to the audience Q&A uh, part of our program, and I encourage you in the audience, if you have questions, to file them in the Q&A, uh, I want to uh, give Larry Diamond an opportunity to uh, pose a question. Larry. Well, my, thank you, Glenn. My question follows, uh, and thank you, Sarah, for this great presentation, uh, directly on the discussion of the last five minutes. Uh, the problem with... Uh, the media ecosystem and so much of the global South is first of all, it's being battered by intolerant and authoritarian states. And second of all, because of that political pressure and just because of the economic exigencies, uh, it's really financially strapped. You've, you've already pretty much um, uh, expressed this dilemma uh, and so I heartily endorse what you're saying about international donor support, public donor support and private donor support. But there's been a concrete proposal made by Luminate uh, in London, part of Omidyar Network, to create an international uh, fund to support public interest media around the world. And I'm wondering if you've seen that and if you think that kind of concept might help level the playing field and bolster uh, the uh, willingness and ability of media in the global south to resist the lure of free Chinese content and other kind of Chinese blandishments. Um, I actually wasn't, a, I'm not aware of that particular initiative, but overall, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think Again, I think the role is two-sided. And I think it's one, enhancing the resilience that you want to enhance anyway, um, to strengthen the media ecosystem and to allow for um, more independent quality journalism to reach audiences. Yeah, and then I think there's that China part where, you know, that type of 
financial independence just makes it more likely and feasible for a journalist at a particular news outlet to go and do an investigative report about what's actually happening at the site of a Chinese, you know, Chinese state related, you know, investment or to run an article about uh, Uyghur refugees in their country or what's happening in, in other cases. So I think, I think they both, they're not mutually exclusive, I guess would be that what I would say. And so I think, I think having an initiative like that would be worthwhile also thinking about, again, where this kind of CCP factor fits in, um, in terms of, uh, you know, being able to uh, strengthen and counter this. I think the other thing I would say, and this relates, and I don't know if a fund that was just say to media would go, is again in the media regulation environment, because I think a lot of types of things that would relate and would help with regards to transparency, investment, cross ownership, are things that in a lot of cases in media environments, it's it's really good policy to have, but you may not have in a lot of countries. And so, or they may not be enforced. So, I mean, I think it can range from investment, certain kinds of investment scrutiny, uh, transparency over ownership, rules about who can own, you know, whether publishers can also own content dissemination channels, which again, protects against say like oligarchs, domestic local oligarchs, as well as some kind of Chinese company, or what we're seeing in more places is the two come together and you have a local business person with strong ties or incentives in China who buys a local media and you start to see the coverage related to China shift. So, um, so I think there's that kind of regulatory um, a dimension as well as the shoring up of, of the media. And then the other thing is like, I mean, part of it is that part of what China is, it is undermining competition. So I think if you want to look at it, this question of market competition, and that's what you really see when it comes to the censorship, when you start to see ads and things like that, that you might have a Chinese language news outlet whose content, especially when you look online, is actually more appealing and more popular and um, better journalistically um, than some other outlet. But because of these um, various other factors that play into it, um, they're having to survive on like Google ads and clicks as opposed to being able to get like real ad revenue. So, I mean, I think that's the other thing is even for companies and for advertisers uh, to think about, you know, again, if this is an issue that's important to you, if this is something that you're concerned about, like how do you actually also help financially support outlets that you feel are doing a good job in this space? And that's actually had a really been a real phenomenon in Taiwan and Hong Kong. Um, there's been a, as, especially in, you know, as you saw more of the traditional media being co-opted and the ownership being co-opted, a whole slew of digital startups, often by journalists who like veteran professional journalists who had left <laughs> those other outlets. And, you know, again, there's a certain economic dimension that supports this, but they're surviving on crowdfunding a lot of it. And that's a lot of cases they actually don't want foreign donor support. Um, but I think that it would be more palatable, say, for them to receive funding from some kind of global fund like Larry, like you were speaking of, Larry, as opposed to, say, the U.S. government or the EU. I think that would be easier for a publication like that. But um, one of the things that happens is that then when they're not self-censoring, you get stories out in the open. And then even the more hesitant media actually have to cover it. Otherwise, it's very obvious that they're self-censoring on behalf of Beijing. So I think the kind of digital media startup, which you know, and, and it can have, can have a real effect as well. 
Substack for Democracy, right? I, I want to pull a couple of questions from the Q&A and collapse them. Um, you know, someone has, many people have observed that it's been a long time since Hollywood made a movie that was really critical of China. And many of those studios, of course, own major news divisions uh, through which Americans get their news mm -hmm. content. Have you observed any changing uh, in the coverage of China that might reflect the economic considerations that those conglomerates have in selling their content to China? Uh, is it actually filtering what we're observing in, in, in the movie space, filtering down into the news divisions? Uh, and then secondly, um, let's bottom line it. Someone would like to know, is China winning? Um, yeah. yeah. Um. Well, the second question, um, I, I don't think they're winning, actually. And I think some of the examples I was giving before, and I think the general skepticism, I think, and, and, and just, gen again, if you're talking about perceptions, I think in a lot of ways, uh, uh, they're not winning. But I think there's a foothold that's being gained. And I think um, being able to... Um, protect against that more proactively because in the next five to 10 years, it's gonna be a really crucial part of this battle. I think especially on the social, figuring out what to do about social media apps um, from China um, and how to both allow access to information, but, um, but see how you deal with um, the content moderation policies, which gets into a whole other um, conversation is, is gonna be a big, a big part. Um, but overall, so far, I don't think, and I think the other thing I would add is um, it's hard to see this from the outside, but a lot of this is driven by very deep insecurity on the part of Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party domestically. There are a lot of people in China, in the party, in the elite, who are very unhappy with the direction that she has taken it. And periodically, you'll see those voices pop up and then kind of get shut down. Um, but one of the things, even like in, you know, the report I, I did on religious uh, revival, repression, and resistance, there's a tremendous amount of grassroots uh, resistance happening, as dangerous as it is. There's a real thirst for information. We published the China Media Bill in Chinese, and we try to reach people in China. And again, millions of people are still jumping the firewall, millions of people who like really want better information about their own country and the rest of the world. And um, you know, some of the basic foundations of the way the CCP has survived post-Tiananmen uh, Xi Jinping is completely undermined. So there's a real deep insecurity there um, that's driving some of this. I don't know where it'll go or when, <laughs> uh, what, what will happen there, but, but I think it, from the outside, you know, they're not as, as strong and robust as they may seem. Um, uh, to the first question, um, uh, you know, I haven't, I haven't seen that. That doesn't mean it's not happening and I haven't really looked at it that closely. Um, one of the projects we're starting to work on now is actually to do more a methodology and do more country specific case studies um, on both Beijing's influence and these various kinds of ways the toolbox plays out, but also factors related to resilience. Um, and one of the countries we'll be doing is the US. So I'm hoping actually to learn a little bit more about what's happening here in the US, you know, over the next year or so as we as we embark on, the, on this new project. And then I'll be able to answer that question probably better. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for a really great overview of the changing global media footprint that, that China is imposing. It's always a good day when we can end on an encouraging note, too. So for those of you in the audience who want to pursue this a little bit further, I refer you to Sarah's report, which came out this year from the National Endowment for Democracy called China's Global Media Footprint. 
in which she goes into some of the things that she discussed today in greater detail. Uh, I want to invite you back on May 11th, where we'll be joined by Andrew Nathan and Wu Jimin to discuss their new book on China's influence and the tug of war in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and the Indo-Pacific. Thank you very much for joining us today and be well. Thank you, Sarah. Mm-hmm.